Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Earlier this summer, disposal experts from the Defense Department destroyed the last remaining M55 rocket filled with deadly sarin nerve agent at a storage facility in Kentucky. It was a major milestone, marking the safe elimination of all declared chemical agents amassed between World War I and the late 1960s. To find out what men who were involved with this extensive initiative, we turn to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Threat Reduction and Arms Control, Kingston Reef. Mr. Reef, good to have you with us. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. I guess I didn't realize that this effort was going on until this late into the, you know, towards the end of 2023. Give us the background here. These were assembled and, I guess, intended for possible use in warfare until that was declared out of bounds. Fair way to describe it? Yeah, sure. So first to to contextualize my role, I represent the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, which is responsible for the manage of the Assembled Chemical Weapons Alternatives or ACWA programs efforts to destroy the last 10% of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile housed in Kentucky and Colorado while ensuring the department's compliance with the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is the treaty that prohibits the possession, development, and use of chemical weapons. And the destruction of approximately 30,600 U.S. tons of chemical agent that was originally housed in nine declared chemical weapons stockpile locations is an achievement that has been decades in the making and was achieved, as you noted, when the Aqua program completed destruction operations with the processing of the last GB or sarin-filled M55 rocket at the Bluegrass Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant in Kentucky on the 7th of July, which was a little over two months before the U.S. commitment to destroy the entirety of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile. Uh, by September 30th of 2023. And what is the process required to destroy one of these things? You can't just blow it up because then it would schmear around what it is you're trying to get rid of. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It takes a lot of dedicated members of the workforce and the community in the last two stockpile locations, Kentucky and Colorado, to to reach a unified path forward for destruction of a chemical weapon. The previous 90% of the chemical weapons destroyed across seven of the nine sites in the in the country prior to 2012 was done using neutralization for bulk containers of chemical agents and incineration for actual uh, chemical weapons filled munitions. And so the department, in collaboration with the surrounding communities in Kentucky and Colorado, impacted by the last 10 percent of the declared stockpile, ultimately selected neutralization followed by biotreatment for the chemical weapon stockpile in Colorado, and ultimately neutralization followed by uh, secondary weight, uh, uh, off-site uh, disposal of the resulting waste. And I should add this, that this was extremely dangerous work. Uh, these weapons were not designed to be taken apart. They had to be painstakingly disassembled in reverse because they were designed with the sole purpose, right, of detonating on the battlefield and inflicting horrendous suffering on their victims. So the achievement really has relied on decades of hard work by thousands of military and civilian employees uh, and, and contractors and 
We owe them a massive debt of gratitude and are very proud of the fact that they were able to complete this extremely important mission safely. The sarin then was not simply in canisters in a warehouse, but inside something that still had the energetics and the explosives with it? That is absolutely correct. Yes, in the form of rockets. And the sarin itself, was it a powder, a liquid? I mean, what what did you find when you managed to open up these things? Yeah, a liquid nerve agent. Yep. Got it. And the bomb part of it, how do you open up an old bomb? Because if you not careful, you could detonate it because you don't want to whack on the uh, accelerator. And so what do they do? Take a circular saw and kind of cut it in half in the middle? I mean, give us a sense of what it actually takes Yeah, here. I mean, you're, 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 you're right. As I mentioned, it's a very, it was a very painstaking process. The weapons had to essentially be painstakingly disassembled and reversed. There were different types of munitions that we were, were dealing with that required different types of processes to to ultimately disassemble. Generally, the first step was re- was to remove the, for, for the rockets, the rocket motors, and for some of the artillery munitions to remove the, the energetics uh, that you mentioned. And then for some of the, the warheads on top of the rockets, there would, basically, there would basically be a cut that was taken and holes punched to drain the rocket of the agent and then to neutralize that agent. And by neutralize, I mean reduce the the toxicity, if you will, of the agent in compliance with what is required by the Chemical Weapons Convention. And then for some of the mortars that we had, which which contain largely mustard agent, we, we used very, what amounted to high pressure water power washing to, to rinse the agent out of the munition and then basically baked the remainder of the munition at very high, high temperature to render what was left scrap metal. And then finally, we also used at, at both locations what were called static detonation chambers, which which effectively is a thermal destruction technology whereby we put the entire rocket or the entire mortar into the, the chamber, heated it to an extremely high temperature, and in a contained and safe way, the munition exploded within that chamber and all you know, the remaining agent was thermally destroyed. It sounds like sort of fun and scary all at the same time. <laughs> a very important mission to to meet a very high priority U.S. international treaty commitment. And are there any long-term learnings from the destruction process that might apply in other domains of, of weaponry and weapons handling and, and life cycle management here? So certainly I think one of our priorities is to ensure that we retain the the human knowledge, the technical knowledge that went into the destruction of the declared U.S. chemical weapons stockpile. The Chemical Weapons Convention is one of the most widely adhered to international agreements that has ever been negotiated. But there are still four nations that are not party to the convention, and we know that several of those nations uh, still have chemical weapons. So whether it's in the event of a battlefield contingency down the road or in the event of uh, a diplomatic opening with one of these countries to whereby they decide to, to join the Chemical Weapons Convention and destroy their chemical weapons stockpile. We want to be in a position to to aid and assist in that. Likewise, there are states parties, members of the convention, notably Russia and Syria, who have signed up to the convention, who have ostensibly destroyed their chemical weapons stockpiles, but we know that they retain Uh, chemical weapons, that they retain offensive chemical weapons programs. So the department, the government needs to be in a position to, again, in the event of a contingency or in the event their behavior changes, 
and they renounce those programs to be able to assess and destroy chemical weapons worldwide. Because the U.S. has had experience in helping other nations with their own destruction. An experience that we are very proud of. We have assisted numerous nations in the destruction of their chemical weapon stockpiles. So that includes Russia, that includes Syria, that includes Albania, that includes Panama, just to name a few. But the fact that there are a couple of nations that still retain these and that they could potentially be used means that the United States has to retain the ability to protect its own warfighters from the effects of such a weapon. So that's something you can't discard yet. Absolutely. And we have a, a program uh, within within the Defense Department under the leadership of my boss, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Chemical and Biological Defense Programs that is focused on exactly that. All right. So what comes next now? Are you sure you got them all? <laughs> We're absolutely sure we got them all. Uh, we, we destroyed the entirety of our declared chemical weapon stockpile, as I mentioned. And I want to add that it's, it's really hard to overstate the importance of the milestone that we achieved in July. 100% of the world's declared chemical weapons have now been destroyed. And for the first time, an entire category of declared weapons of mass destruction has been eliminated. And one of the most important actions the United States could take to contribute to a world free of chemical weapons was to follow through on our own treaty commitment. And with verifiable completion of destruction operations, uh, we've done just that. So with with respect to what comes next after the completion of destruction operations of our declared chemical weapon stockpile, the Defense Department is now moving into a phase whereby we will safely close the two destruction facilities in Colorado and Kentucky that house the remaining 10% of our chemical weapon stockpile. And closure is expected to last three to four years. Uh, During that closure phase, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is the implementing body for the Chemical Weapons Convention, will continue verification activities until all uh, treaty accountable waste items from the destruction process are disposed of. And the department is planning to spend over $2 billion to close out the program over the next five years. Wow. Will there be at least a plaque commemorating what happened on this site? (laughs) There will be, I think it's fair to say, commemorations of of what happened at each one of the facilities. Kingston Reef is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Threat Reduction and Arms Control. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. You can find this interview on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Work. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.